This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on June 27, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... So there's something about being outside that calms down our thinking brains and sort of dials up our sensory brains. It's really a nice change for our nervous systems. That's Florence Williams. She's a journalist and the author of the 2017 book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. America's professor and author emeritus of nature, Edward O. Wilson, said about the book, The Nature Fix is a beautifully written, thoroughly enjoyable exposition of a major principle of human life, now supported by evidence in biology, psychology, and medicine. We'll also hear a segment sponsored by the Kavli Prize with a new laureate in neuroscience, David Julius, who was honored for his research into the molecular basis of the perception of pain and how it might lead to new ways to control pain. But first, Florence Williams. I called her at home in Washington, D.C. title of the book is The Nature Fix, and that's a bit of a double meaning. It is. Um, you know, I'm very aware of uh, nature being both a curative agent, but, but also something that we can be a little bit addicted to. I know I need my daily dose of nature or I am not as nice a person. So I think there is this kind of quality of, um, yeah, it's like a drug, both in the, in the good way and in the addictive way. And the fix being it can fix some pretty substantial issues by getting out into nature. Yeah, I mean, the science is really pretty strong and pretty suggestive that nature does act sometimes like a magic pill. Um, We know that it can calm our nervous systems, it can boost our immune systems, Um, it seems to make our moods brighter and better. Uh, So it's it's kind of this smart pill, this antidepressant, um, and a little bit of a mood boost all in one. And we now have really decent data on a lot of that. I mean, the book is... uh sprinkled with the insights of philosophers, I mean, going back thousands of years, writers, poets, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, who built Central Park and other great parks, uh, they, they all had these ideas about the benefits of nature, but we actually have data about that. That's right. I think poets and philosophers have known for millennia, you know, that being outside helps us think. It helps us be creative. I mean, Aristotle used to walk the parapets, you know, with his students in order to sort of think more clearly. Um, Certainly the romantic poets like Wordsworth, you know, talked a lot about how nature had helped him heal from incredible loss um, and from grief. But now we have increasing amounts of evidence. So scientists have been able to measure um, certain, you know, physiological aspects of our bodies and our nervous systems while we're out in different environments. So, for example, um, we know that our blood pressure drops Um, when we're in a sort of pleasant natural environment, you know, even for as little amount of time as 15 minutes. Um, We know that our moods increase. Um, We know that our short-term working memory gets stronger and our attention spans get get sharper. And these happen just after, you know, 30, 40 minutes outside. And you delineate a lot of those studies in in the book. Um, But there's a couple that are really interesting, like you talk about the Finnish study from Finland, 
not that it's over, <laughs> the Finnish study, um, that determined that five hours per month was the recommended dose, that you needed to hit that minimum uh, to see some kind of uh, beneficial effect from being out in nature. Yeah, that was actually from actually a series of studies coming out of Finland, um, sort of measuring people's vitality, people's moods after being in different environments. And they looked at at a couple of different levels of immersion in nature. So they looked at city parks, they looked at more forested kind of naturalistic parks, um, and they looked at just urban areas that didn't have any green space near them. Um, and yeah, and, and, and the conclusion from that I thought was kind of funny because it was this very specific dose. It was like, if you can go outside for a minimum dose of five hours a month, um, which is a couple of visits a week, you know, maybe of 30 to 40 minutes, that, that we think you can actually prevent mild to moderate depression. So it was like kind of this very specific outcome. They were looking at depression, and then they had this really specific dose. And actually, since that study, or those series of studies came out, um, there was a study last year that came out of the UK. And of course, this was during the time of Brexit. <laughs> so maybe the maybe British people needed a little more nature. But the, the recommendation that came out of this um, study in the UK was two hours a week. And if you can get two hours a week, so that's eight hours a month, um, that was what you really needed to be sort of optimally healthy and happy. One of the interesting points that one of the people you spoke to in the book made was that the landscape should be interesting, but not too interesting. Yeah. Well, one of the theories, one of the sort of theoretical frameworks behind why nature makes us feel better is called the attention restoration theory. It was really posited by researchers at the University of Michigan. And what they found is that when we're outside in a pleasant environment, um, our brains kind of hit this sweet spot where we're not overwhelmed or overstimulated by what we're seeing, you know, in the way that we are, for example, if we're walking across an urban intersection, <laughs> or in my case, trying to sort of drive one of the traffic circles in Washington, D.C., um, you know, in that case, your brain is working so hard to process all this incoming information, you have to filter out a lot of stuff. You know, if, if the radio is on in your car, you're not actually hearing anything because you're paying too much attention to the car that's about to run into you. Um, and that really tires out our brains, you know, the, those acts of filtration and um, just that kind of, you know, incredible input. Um, and, and yet when we're outside of nature, there's just enough to sort of draw our attention. You know, maybe we hear the sweet song of a bird or there's a puffy, pretty cloud, you know, that catches our attention um, or something, you know, a, a pretty butterfly flies in front of us. So we're sort of drawn out of our kind of ruminating brains, um, but we're not bored, right? So so there's something, there's like the sweet spot of interesting, but not overwhelmingly interesting. Um, and that's what they mean by soft fascination. And attention, you also talk about William James and his thoughts on attention over 100 years ago. And that also really comes right into play with the kind of research and results that you're talking about in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. William James was writing, you know, over 100 years ago, and he found even then <laughs> that people felt um, sort of overwhelmed by the pace of information. You know, looking back on that now, it seems very quaint. Um, and, and so I think he really understood that our brains just need a little bit of a rest. You know, we need sometimes for our sensory brains to turn on. We need to smell things and we need to look at sort of interesting visual patterns, and, you know, maybe hear, you know, nature songs. I mean, our brains are really designed 
to use their use our senses. We have these perceptual systems that are designed actually for the natural world, um, and and yet we so rarely get to use all of our senses. You know, in modern life, we're just really we're just kind of using the frontal cortex of our brains. We're solving problems all day. We're checking off emails. Um, and so, so there's something about being outside that calms down our, our thinking brains and sort of dials up our sensory brains. It's really a nice change for our nervous systems. Yeah. You have a chapter, three different chapters in the book, one each for the sounds of nature, the smells of nature, which is really interesting. And just looking at nature by being out in it and and the there's data in all of those situations for the beneficial effects um i think the smell is really interesting yeah i thought that was really interesting too i think we tend to downplay our sense of smell you know of course dogs have a sense of smell that's like whatever you know a thousand times stronger than ours um and and in fact there's some indication that because we are now a modern you know urban animal we're actually losing our sense of smell (laughs) there are things we don't want to smell when we're living in a city um and yet you know our, our olfactory system it's kind of this direct pathway to the brain and there are some really interesting studies showing that when we smell something like a pine forest, um, it instantly makes us feel more alive, it kind of wakes us up in this really nice way. Um, when we when we smell something citrusy, you know, it, it improves our moods, maybe makes us um, spend more money <laughs> if we're in a store that's misting some, some citrus smells. So I think it's this kind of underappreciated uh, sense that we have. Underappreciated except by Proust. <laughs> yes, exactly. We know that it can be very evocative <laughs> for our moods. And, and, you, and you cite Proust in the book, too. Um, the sounds also have an interesting effect. When you're out in nature, you hear the birds and the, and the water flowing and the wind in the trees. And all of those apparently have beneficial effects. And they're usually in terms of lowering blood pressure and uh, lowering levels of uh, stress hormones. It was really interesting to me to learn about that. And there are a number of interesting lab studies um, showing that when we hear bird song, for example, although it has to be a certain kind of bird song, <laughs> it has to be the pretty bird song and not the screechy bird song. Um, you know, we do, we tend to feel more alert um, and we have a, have a greater sense of well-being. And I think part of the theory of that is that, you know, when the birds are singing, we know kind of subconsciously our deep evolutionary brain knows that that means that everything's okay, right? All is right in the world. There's no huge predator lurking about. There's no big thunderstorm about to descend. And so there's something just subconsciously soothing about it. More with Florence Williams coming up. But first, let's go now from nature to the nature of pain and its treatment with a segment sponsored by the Cavalry Prize. As a grad student at the University of California, Berkeley, David Julius was studying protein secretion in yeast, but a late night encounter outside the lab building got him thinking about how natural products affect the brain. And I was just lying on this bench, it was a beautiful evening, and these two guys came up and they said, hey, you know, about 10 or 15 years ago, we got some great acid out of this building. And it turned out there was some guy, I think a postdoc who'd been making LSD. You know, they wanted to know if there was still more available. And I thought, wow, these guys, you know, in my mind, they had been wandering around Berkeley for the last 10 years thinking about this. That got Julius thinking about ways he could leverage other natural compounds to study the nervous system, which ultimately led to his groundbreaking discovery of a family of receptors that allow us to sense temperature 
and revolutionized our understanding of the molecular basis of pain. For that transformative work, Julius, who's now at the University of California, San Francisco, shared the Kavli Prize in Neuroscience with Artem Padaputian at the Scripps Research Institute, who unraveled how we detect pressure. Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the Kavli Prize, reached out to Julius to ask about the next big questions in pain research, including how his findings could lead to a new class of analgesics and how we can improve the clinical assessment and treatment of different types of pain. For Julius, who's now at the University of California, San Francisco, the path to unlocking pain's secrets started with capsaicin, the molecule that gives chili peppers their punch. The role of capsaicin in activating these sensory nerve fibers, the ones that are sort of specifically dedicated to pain sensation, that was something that was discovered by a group in Hungary, where paprika, of course, is a big part of the economy. But how capsaicin excites these sensory cells was a mystery, until Julius and his colleagues identified the receptor that capsaicin binds. Of course, this receptor didn't evolve just so we could all get a kick out of jalapenos. And then the question was, okay, now what else can we use to activate it, and what does it normally do? The breakthrough came when they decided to look past the usual chemical suspects and try something more physical. So we started heating up solutions and pouring it over these cells, and lo and behold, we found, well, the channel's activating by, you know, increase in temperature. That got Julius wondering. How do you sense cold? But we went through the same thing, and we decided we'd try and identify a cold receptor. And when they found that receptor, they realized that, like the capsaicin receptor, it also acted as a channel that opens to allow calcium to activate sensory cells. Holy cow. I mean, that was an amazing eureka moment. Now you really have the conceptual framework for understanding how temperature is sensed. And that was pretty exciting. Of course, Julius still needs to figure out exactly how temperature turns on the capsaicin receptor. We really still don't understand that. So we have a pretty good idea of how capsaicin works, and we know where it binds, and we get some idea of how that induces conformational movements in the channel to open it up. For heat, we don't know. Julius is hoping to use cryo-electron microscopy to visualize in atomic detail exactly how heat opens up the channel. Are there specific regions of the channel that are more temperature sensitive than others, or is it sort of an integrated process over the whole protein? Knowing in detail how the channel operates could lead to the development of drugs that dull persistent pain, such as the pain associated with arthritis, cancer, lower back troubles, irritable bowel syndrome, or other chronic conditions. Of course, the trick is eliminating pathological pain while leaving the ability to sense things like heat intact. Some of the early antagonists, they've scored well recently in things like models of osteoarthritic knee pain. But the problem is that they also block the ability of the channel to detect heat. So then, you know, drug companies worry about people drinking uh, hot coffee and burning themselves. And so the challenge is to really develop an analgesic that can diminish hypersensitivity to the pain pathway without losing the acute protective function. Even that won't produce a drug that's a panacea for everything from arthritis to an annoying itch. So researchers will still need to match the treatment with the particular type of pain. How does migraine pain differ from bladder pain, from cutaneous pain? What are the different sensory neuron subtypes that are involved in each of these locales? And of course, that's critically important to understanding how you treat different pain syndromes. As is knowing how those painful messages are routed to the brain, and what the brain does with the information once it arrives. We really don't know a lot about the detailed circuitry and the molecular players that regulate these circuits. 
who are these sensory nerve fibers talking to in the spinal cord? And what is the route that these things are taking to relevant regions of the brain? Understanding the precise pathways by which the brain processes or even exaggerates pain signals could lead to better ways to measure pain in the clinic. Pain has a very subjective component to it. When people come into the clinic and they don't have a physical manifestation of an injury, but they still say they're in pain, you know, they're up against a hard place because a lot of times people, well, you know, it's all in your head, da 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 having more objective measures that would enable them to be more accurately assessed as patients, I think is, you know, man, that's a huge challenge. It's important because there are a lot of people who deal with these issues all the time. And you don't really realize how much it changes their life. And Julius hopes his work will help change them for the better. This podcast was made possible through the support of the Kavli Prize. The Kavli Prize recognizes scientists for pioneering advances in the fields of astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation. David Julius is from the University of California, San Francisco. Now more with Florence Williams, author of The Nature Fix. You have an interesting study that you talk about, a couple of them actually, where people were asked to look at something very briefly for a minute or two that elicited a feeling of awe within them. And after that, the researchers did some sneaky experiments and people's behavior was different after they had experienced this moment of awe. I am really fascinated by this kind of relatively new science of awe. You know, it's a positive emotion that tends to be sort of understudied. And I guess the official definition of awe is that um, it's, it's a sense of something kind of vast, um, you know, that's a little bit hard to understand at first. It kind of, um, you know, captures our attention, maybe surprises us. You know, if you think about, you know, driving around a bend and seeing the full moon rising or something, in a way it sort of catches our breath. And when that happens, we feel connected, you know, to something larger than ourselves. And what these studies show is that we also tend to feel more connected to each other. And so after we look at something really beautiful, even in a laboratory, for example, a waterfall or a whale, you know, breaching on the ocean, um, we then in psychology games, we, we give away more lottery money or we're better teammates. Um, <laughs> we behave in more generous and altruistic ways after looking at a picture of that, as opposed to looking at a picture of a parking lot, you know, or a shopping mall. So there's something about this beauty in nature that draws us out of ourselves, makes us feel a little bit smaller in a way, a little more humble, um, and connects us to other other people. And, and I think in this way, you know, we can think of experiencing nature and beauty uh, as being something that's actually good for civilization. Speaking of civilization, now this book came out in 2017, was it? Yes. Yeah. So, but the reason I called you now, I mean, I've had the book on my desk since then, and I've really wanted to read it. Um, and I made time for myself to finally read it because I thought it was so important in our current coronavirus state where we're, I don't mean New York, I mean the state of the nation, the state of the world, where we are deprived of our usual activities. And for a lot of people, that might include being able to go out in nature. And do you have any thoughts about 
the importance of being able to still go out in nature under our current conditions? Well, as you may imagine, I do have strong thoughts about it. <laughs> Having written this book, I feel like you know the lessons of this book are are absolutely critical right now, more important than ever before. And I, I've been really heartened by um, you know a lot of the lockdown orders that people are under um, actually have exclusions for time outside. So you know, governors, mayors, they're really understanding that we need opportunities now that help us deal with stress. Um, that make us feel um, that make us feel comforted, that make us feel better. We know that when we're outside, it is good for our nervous systems. Um, even the metaphors of nature, things like being able to look at the sunset um, or look at the sunrise, there's a lot of comfort in these cycles of nature. You know, there's a message of resilience there. There's a message that the natural world goes on. Um, and I, I think we just we need these lessons more than ever. Um, we need to feel connected to each other. We need to feel like we're all in this together. We're all living under the same sky. And, and I think these are really, really important messages that spending some time outside can really help us. There's a study in the book, uh, an, a natural experiment. Um, a whole lot of trees were destroyed by this invasive instinct, instinct, invasive insect, <laughs> the ash borer. And um, the results were really amazing as far as uh, what happened to people's health when they lived in areas where the ash trees were suddenly gone because of the insect invasion. And you quote one of the researchers involved in the study. (laughs) I really like this quote. He said, we quite like death as an outcome. We know that if they're dead, something is wrong with them. (laughs) Yes, that was a really fascinating natural experiment. Um, And what happened is that the ash borer wiped out tens of thousands of ash trees all over the Midwest. And in communities that had lost those trees, residents, compared to people living in neighborhoods that didn't lose their trees, experienced um, higher rates of, of morbidity, experienced higher rates of cardiovascular disease um, and higher incidence of death. So people felt a tremendous loss and and also somehow perhaps grief um, and also this kind of loss of, you know, whatever comfort they had derived from these trees. So their lives became more stressful in the absence of nature. It was really a fascinating study. Really? I don't think anybody could have expected that. Um there's um, a, a confounder that I want to, uh, some people might be listening and thinking, well, if you're out in nature, you're getting exercise. How do you know it's not just the exercise? If you're out in nature, you probably have more money. How do you know it's not just your socio- socioeconomic status? But the, the studies do deal with those confounders. Well, I think those are great questions. And in fact, it is sometimes very hard to tease out exactly which elements of being outside in nature, you know, may be conferring the most benefits. Um, It's absolutely true. People who are outside do tend to have um, more access to the outside. So they do sometimes tend to live in neighborhoods that are, you know, have higher socioeconomic status. They therefore may have better health care, especially in the United States. Um, but there have been a, you know, so many studies now, large epidemiological studies that are controlling for income, they're controlling for levels of education, um, and increasingly they're also controlling, some of them are controlling for exercise. So, for example, um, these studies coming out of Japan 
Um, these, these were some of the studies that showed effects on the nervous system, respiration rates, blood pressure, uh, being outside for just 15 minutes. And um, the researchers sent a control group to sort of walk around an urban neighborhood. So they got the same amount of exercise. They covered the same mileage. Um, really, the, the only difference there was where they were walking. And they really only saw these positive effects on the nervous system in the forest walkers and not in the city walkers. That's amazing. And uh, for people who are really low income, there are studies that show that they really benefit if they can get out in in any kind of nature that's available. I think there was a, a Scottish study in particular. There's a Scottish study. Um, there's also an English study. And these were pretty large scale studies looking at, you know, over 10,000 people um, showing that people who lived closest to green space um, did have more health benefits. And in fact, the poorer you were, the greater the benefits. So um, there was this health boost that came from just living near green space. Uh, and it was most pronounced in people with the least amount of resources. That's just incredible. So um, you you had an aphorism that you, or a bit of advice that you coined. And uh, I think you probably modeled it after uh, the food writer, Pollen. I forget. Michael Pollen. Michael yes, Pollen. That's right. Yes, and right. Pollen's uh, credo is uh, eat real food, uh, not too much, uh, lots of fruits and vegetables, I think. Most, mostly plants. Mostly plants. <laughs> eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And, um, and yours. Yeah, so I did. I came up with my own, <laughs> my own Pollen-esque motto, and it's, um, it's go outside, go often, and don't forget to breathe. And I've modified it some too. It's like also bring kids with you. Sometimes bring people, sometimes don't. Right. In the book, you say go outside often, sometimes in wild places. Bring friends. Well, you wrote this three years ago, so I'm amazed you remember as much as, <laughs> as, much as you have. Um, yeah. Go outside often, sometimes in wild places. Bring friends or not and breathe. Get outside and breathe. It's just, it'll change your life. And you also participated in a lot of studies in the course of researching this book. I did. I often use myself <laughs> as kind of an N of one. Not that we're getting any real science out of that, but I think it's a way to talk about it. One of the things I did was I sometimes wore um, a portable EEG cap on my head. So that was, that was like an encephalo, um, electroencephalography. There you go. Um, and measuring brain waves, essentially. And I wore that EEG cap in all kinds of different locations. I wore it in city streets. I wore it in city parks. I wore it in the, the deepest, largest wilderness areas. Um, I wore it on some lakes in Maine. And I, and I was looking specifically at um, alpha waves, which are supposed to be kind of a marker of a state of engagement, um, but also a relaxed engagement. And I was not able to get alpha waves very much when I was in a city, even when I was in a city park, um, because there's a lot of noise in city parks. And I, and I think noise pollution is this sort of underappreciated stressor in, in many people's lives. Um, but when I was in wilderness areas or in lakes, sort of quieter spots, I was able to get that kind of more relaxed state of mind. So, so that was revealing for me, I thought, and pretty interesting. Yeah, you... Uh spent that that rafting trip with the veterans group near there in the book i think you also talk about just how virtually impossible it is to go any place where you don't 
have noise pollution in the country. I know we, we covered that study when it came out about 10 years ago. It's really amazing. It's amazing how uh, some people say we're now living in peak noise. Um, that really, you know, since the Industrial Revolution started, we now have louder, you know, louder engines, more urban density. Um, and, and yet there's some indication that a lot of engines are going to get quieter. For example, leaf blowers, you know, a lot of neighborhoods and communities are banning gas-powered leaf blowers. The electric ones are much quieter. Airplanes now are actually quieter than they used to be. So I'm, I'm hopeful that perhaps some of these urban urban sources of pollution, noise pollution, will um, kind of attenuate. But for, for now, it, it is, I think, one of the biggest stressors, actually, of living our urban lives. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting about this lockdown we're under this you know terrible time um, is that our cities are quieter. They're quieter than they've been you know since 9/11. Very few airplanes are flying overhead. There's very little noise noise um, from from road traffic. So um, in some ways, it's a good time to go outside and take your earbuds out and listen to the sounds of nature. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.